please be seated. Well, in case you haven't figured it out yet, it's Easter. <laughs> Comes every year. It's a wonderful story. It's the story that really has changed the world. A simple story, really. We hear it over and over again. Matthew presents it very simply in his gospel, chapter 28. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for the, an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly they met Jesus and said, Greetings. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. So Matthew makes it very clear that this Jesus wasn't just a spirit, this Jesus who came out of the grave. He was a physical, real being. That he is alive. The Apostle Paul says the whole Christian faith is based on this single fact, that not only was Jesus crucified to pay the penalty for our sins, he was raised from the dead to release us from the power of sin. Luke, in his book of Acts, tells us that in my former book, referring to the Gospel of Luke, he said, in my former book, O Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait my other promise, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was telling his disciples, a whole new thing is coming. My death and my resurrection are changing the world by changing people one at a time. And, and so as we read the, the Gospels, all four Gospels talk at length. Well, Mark, not as much, but Matthew a bit more, Luke a whole lot, and John a whole lot more. Talk and give us great detail about this life that Jesus lived on earth after his crucifixion. He ate with the disciples to demonstrate that he was alive. 
uh, he told Thomas, who doubted, and said, I, I, I'm having trouble with this. You, I, I saw you crucified, and now they're telling me you're alive? And Jesus said, put your, ha- put your fingers in my hands and feel the wounds. So this resurrection of Jesus Christ is a real thing. But even early on, we find that people were doubting such an incredible fact. In fact, I put together this week a, a little document, Can We Believe in Jesus' Resurrection? There are some copies of this on the back table. Seven pieces of evidence that demonstrate that Jesus did come back from the grave, that he is alive. Because it's foundational to our faith. Paul said of the Christians, If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christianity is a pathetic ruse if Jesus Christ did not come back from the grave. The wonderful story, the crucifixion on Friday, we remembered the death of Jesus. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. But then on Sunday, he rose again to release us from the power of sin. So we've heard the story every Easter. We come and we sit in church. We sing about it. We pray about it. We raise our hands about it. We do all this great stuff. It's a wonderful story. But I stop and ask myself, so what? (laughs) So what? I mean, so what this morning? We celebrate it. Great. But what about tomorrow morning? What about Wednesday afternoon? Does this resurrection thing, this Easter celebration, have anything to do with what we call real life? And the Apostle Paul was concerned about that because such an incredible event, instituted, orchestrated by God himself, certainly had some meaning beyond singing about it in church on Sunday morning. And he wanted his readers to clearly understand what this event, this resurrection thing was all about. And in Romans chapter 6, he explained the so what of Easter. The so what of the resurrection. Now in chapters 4 and 5, Paul had gone on and on about this whole idea of God's grace. And in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Romans, he tells us that Jesus Christ, in his death, paid the penalty for the sins of humankind. That we receive God's gift of salvation without charge. We can't pay for it. We can't earn it. It is God's gift. And it, the idea is that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. The wages of sin is death. But I can't die for my own sins because I am guilty of my sins. I'm bankrupt. And so Jesus came, lived a sinless life, and he died on Calvary to pay the price of our sins. That's chapters 4 and 5. God's grace is limitless. You cannot outgive God, as Doug reminded us earlier. So Paul came in Romans chapter 6 after talking about God's grace and the abundance of grace and how God forgives sin and the gracious uh, gift of God of forgiveness. And so Paul asked in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? 
Hey, it's a free ticket. Go ahead and sin. God forgives it. Is that the attitude? Should we go on just, hey, if God's got grace, we give him a chance to get all the grace he wants <laughs> by living a wretched life. Paul said, that's absurd. That's absurd. And his response to his own question, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I love this word, meganoito. That's as strong a negative as you can express in Greek. Absolutely not. Are you out of your mind that you would even consider such a thing? Well, Paul said, I suspect some of you were considering it, so I thought I'd raise it for you. And then answer it. And in this sixth chapter, three times, it's pretty much repetitious, three different times with a bit of a different nuance each time, he asks and answers that same question. How should we live in light of Jesus' death to pay for the penalty of our sins and his resurrection to release us from the power of sin in our life? So he said, should we go on sinning? Absolutely not. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He said, when, when, when you became a Christian, when you entered into a relationship with Christ, something enormous happened to you. You died to sin. So how can you live in it any longer? You say, well, that's about as clear as mud. What do you mean by that? Uh, we who are died to sin, how should we live in it? He says, well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And he uses the term baptism to speak of this moment when we were, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, born again. When we entered into a personal relationship with the living God by confessing our sins to Jesus and asking him to forgive us. And that whole thing is, is an enormous event that goes on in the human life where we are connected to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is connected to us. And part of that whole deal is that we are, we are entered into this relationship, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we become part of the body of Christ. We are baptized by his Holy Spirit into this relationship with him. And part of that moment, part of that event, he said, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, in a sense, died with him? Our old nature, this sin, this, this sin nature died with Christ when he was crucified. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death. So when, when we enter into a relationship with Christ, Christ says, you are now part of me. It's as if you died with me. Your sin nature, this person that you were, died with me. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that, and here's the punchline, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So the idea of baptism is that you went into the grave with Christ, but you came out of the grave with Christ. You went into the grave with Christ to where he paid the penalty for your sin, but he brought you back with him out of the grave into a new life to be released from the power of sin over your life. This whole idea, you, we too may live a new life. The, the word new is a beautiful word. Uh, the uh, uh, Lonidas uh, uh, Greek-English lexicon says it's a state of being new and different with the implication of superiority. 
Kittle's Theological Dictionary of New Testament Words says that the word uh, kainos, which is used here as distinct from neos, is, means new in nature with an implication of better. It's a you are a new creature. Jesus remade you when you became a Christian. You have not yet become a Christian. The possibility is to be made new. As Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so that we too may live a new life. A new life. And then he continued, verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. What Paul is telling us is that the death and resurrection of Christ makes it possible for us to gain a whole new way of thinking, a whole new set of values, empowered by God to live a different kind of life than we could live if we did not know Jesus Christ. So the message of Easter is the offer of just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we are raised from a life that is dominated by our sin nature to a life that is dominated by the new nature that God gave us. So what of the resurrection? We have been united with him in a resurrection like his. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he gives the negative. No longer live like you used to live. No longer live as if there is no God. No longer live with anger and lust and greed and those things that are so disruptive in human life. You don't have to. If Jesus gave us a new life, as he came out of the grave, he has raised us up with him to live a new life that only he could give us. He died to pay the penalty for sin. He was raised to conquer the power of sin in the human life. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ. I've said it many times here, the minus one and the plus one. The minus one is you don't have to live a negative life. A lot of people like that. You mean I don't have to do bad things? I can choose to do them, but I don't have to do them. Yeah, that's good news. But just being not bad isn't good enough. He said, I didn't just save you from being a bad person. I created you to be an aggressively, positively good person. To be a new person, to live a new kind of life. A life that is governed 
and empowered by God himself. To be not only non-productive, but to be aggressively productive, to be doing good and right in the power of God. So that's the theology of the resurrection, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. He was raised to deliver us from the power of sin. And now we come to the so what? So Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now you look like an awfully nice bunch of people. It's hard to even think about talking about sin to this really sharp-looking group of people. But the Bible is pretty clear that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. If you knew me like I really am, you wouldn't even listen to me. And if I knew you like you really are, I wouldn't even talk to you. (laughs) You look so pious. And look at me up here. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And the power of sin, isn't it with you or is it just me? It's such a powerful presence. To do things, as Paul wrote in the next chapter, Paul said, I'm writing this about how we're freed from sin's power, but it doesn't deliver us from sin's presence. And Paul said, as I I live my life, I'm writing this stuff, okay? I'm the great apostle, but here's my story. He said, I have two lists. That which I would, I do not. That which I would not, that I do. You say, that doesn't make much sense. Well, let me tell you about the apostle. I got list A, that which I would, Okay? These are the things I'm going to do. That which I would, I do not. I got this other list. That which I would not. I got that list. That I do. So this struggle goes on. This struggle goes on. It goes on. And what Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 6 is that it doesn't have to conquer us. I had a, worked with a guy who had a terrible temper a Christian guy at a Bible conference. One day he blew up and was doing all this stuff, and my friend said, hey, knock that off. No place for that here. And the guy said, I'm sorry, I was born with this bad temper. My friend said, you were born again without it, so get rid of it. (laughs) So in this struggle against sin, against greed against hate, against fear, against lust, against all of these things that we just seem to battle. Paul said the whole idea of the resurrection is that God has released you from that. It is possible for you under his power, under his good hand, to go from living that kind of a life to living a productive life. Therefore, therefore, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey obey its evil desires. 
Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Your mind, your hands, your attitudes, your values, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of righteousness. That's the minus one. But rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law but under grace. You have a new master. And just as sin dominates those who do not know Christ, Paul is saying when you enter into this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he gives you a capacity to live a life that is far better than you ever could imagine to live without his power. Well, then he comes back again and asks the question again, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. This is verse 15. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves of sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Choose your master. Choose your master. Is it your own inclinations? Is it your own passions? Or is it the power of God to create a whole new life in you? This whole idea of being a Christian, it's more than just a religion. It's more than a rules or rituals. It's more than going to church. It's about a whole new life. It's a whole new life empowered by none other than the Spirit of God himself. You are slaves to the one you obey. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sins, Paul wrote, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. How does that work? How does that work? How does that work for you? How does that work? It's a life of close, intimate communication, contact with the living God himself through Jesus Christ. This life is not one that's, that's very passive. It's one that aggressively pursues what God has built into us as his children. Prayer. Meditating on his word, on the scriptures. Being involved with other Christians. Being involved with non-Christians as a ministry. It's living life to the full as God has enabled us to do. Paul said, I'm going to give you an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity, to ever-increasing wickedness, now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. It's a choice. God has said, it's available. I'm here. Ask me. I will help I will be involved in your life. I will help you overcome the things that are destroying your life and give you a whole new life of productivity and righteousness. So we've seen the, the narrative. All four Gospels talk about it. Luke talks about it twice, not only in his Gospel, but in the book of Acts. Paul has said that the death Jesus died freed us from sin's penalty. 
the life he lives from the resurrection saves us from life's, from sin's power. So what's it look like? Well, a few weeks ago, our whole staff went to see the movie, The Jesus Revolution. I don't know if you've seen it or heard about it. It's a story of back in the 70s when a whole bunch of people here in Southern California in the drug culture began to, began to find Jesus. And they went to this church and, and, and he preached the gospel and they became Christians. And many of these folks have been trying like crazy to get out of the drug culture, to shake the habit. They couldn't shake it. They couldn't afford it. It was ruining their lives and they tried everything they could imagine. But what they found is they came to Jesus. This Roman six thing began to take action in their life. And many of them were going to their friends and saying, I kicked it through the power of God, through this relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul in Romans 6 says, you are no longer slaves to your drugs. You're no longer slaves to your lust. Jesus has given you a new life. Now, I was teaching at Dallas Seminary at that time, and we had a number of the, the new converts who came out of that Jesus movement to seminary. They were wonderful to have in class. They didn't know Genesis and Revolutions. They were just totally, you know, they would ask the off-the-wall questions that other people were afraid to admit they didn't know. But it was real, and it was a breath of fresh air that these kids were overcoming some of the bad stuff in their life and living a new life, and they couldn't wait. They were telling all their friends that this is an answer to your questions, an answer to your problems. And thousands, thousands of these young drug culture kids came to Christ and their lives were changed. And a number of them ended up in seminary and are now pastoring churches. <laughs> kind of amazing. You look at the lives of these apostles. Judas betrayed Jesus, but the other ten all abandoned him the night of his trials. Peter even denied him three times, saying, I don't even know the man. Out of fear. Yet after the resurrection... Ten of those 11 men were martyred. They all were beaten and imprisoned. And the Apostle John, who wasn't martyred, was exiled to an island, a rock in the Mediterranean. All any of them had to say is the resurrection isn't true. But 11 out of 11 said, I will go to my martyrdom, rather than deny that Jesus has changed my life from a coward to a martyr. And St. Paul, who was persecuting the church, rounding people up, sending them to prison, giving them death sentences, met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he went from being the church's greatest enemy to being the church's greatest evangelist. Why? Because the power of Christ turned him around. He was no longer a slave to sin. He was a slave to righteousness. Dan Matchkey from Prison Ministry stood in this pulpit a few weeks ago and told story after story of criminals, men in prison, murderers, thieves, rapists, brutal men who are now studying to be prison chaplains. Because the power of Christ not only turned them from not being sinners, but turned them into a life of righteousness. 
If you don't mind a personal story, my dad gave me permission to tell his story, in de not in detail, but my dad was a mean drunk. He was a union enforcer for the longshoremen's. He took meat hooks to guys to get them off the docks. He was a nasty man. My brother left home when he was 17. I left home when I was 15. My mother blessed us to get out of there. He was afraid of what was going to happen. When my dad was 73, he was going in for surgery. They said he wasn't going to make it. Very slim chance he was going to make it. So his friend, Mr. Campbell, came and said, Buzzell, you told me if I ever talk to you about Jesus again, you're going to punch my lights out. But you're too weak to punch me, and I know what's going to happen to you if you die tomorrow, so shut up and listen. He told him the gospel. My dad had heard it before, sort of, always shut it off, don't want to hear that. He heard the gospel, and then he used one of the Bible words that he liked to use. My dad was big on Bible words. He said, what the hell? Okay. <laughs> and he accepted Jesus. He lived through the surgery. A couple days later, he said to my mother, I've been sober for three days, and I have never been sober a day in my life since I was 16 years old. The next thing he said is, I, I've been trying to quit smoking. And that went away. And then a year or two later, Jeanette and I were visiting, and I, my dad and I were talking. I said, Dad, what's happening with you? And he said, well, I won't quote him exactly, but he said, what, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're almost nice. <laughs> I said, the little kids and dogs don't run and hide when you walk in the room. He sort of laughed. And I said, and you're nice to Mom. And when we were at dinner last night, you didn't cuss the waiter out once. I, I, you know, what's happening? He said, I, 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 he pointed to his Bible. He said, I read that thing every day. I said, just reading the Bible? He said, well, yeah. And he said, well, no, I, I read it. I figure out what it means, and I do it. And this man, who was so nasty, was delivering meals on wheels. He was helping at his church. Now, his pastor told me in 40 years of ministry, I've only had one parishioner who cusses me out regularly, and that's your dad. But he loves Jesus, and he's growing, and he's changing. So it's up close and personal. And there are many, many stories right here in this room. As I look across here, I, I just absolutely know there are people who say my life was turned 180 degrees. Not only am I not doing the bad stuff I used to, well, I do once in a while, but not as much. But I'm also excited about living a good life and making a difference. And Paul said, that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. It's your resurrection too. Your resurrection from a life controlled by sin to a life that is controlled by righteousness and wholesomeness, and service, and love for God. That's the so what of the resurrection.